0: We're continuing in our sermon series this morning in the Ten Commandments. Uh, this morning we come to the Sixth Commandment. Uh, as is our custom, I ask that you would stand now for the reading of God's Word. A short passage, but certainly much to be said. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Moses says, you shall not murder. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is true. And we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that you would... Give me the courage to get out of your way so that you might speak clearly to our hearts, that we might be transformed as we encounter you, the living God. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can be seated. As was just mentioned a few moments ago, and as I'm sure many of you saw on the news five days ago, on Valentine's Day of all days at around 2.30 p.m., Nicholas Cruz walked into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, armed with an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle and shot and killed 17 people, injuring another 14 in the process. How tragically fitting is it that we now come to the Sixth Commandment while still reeling from the sting of death in another American school. And you obviously don't need me, your pastor, to inform you that what happened this week in Florida was evil and was wrong. As a matter of fact, no other commandment is more globally and historically accepted as this one, do not murder. Pretty much every society from the dawn of creation has on some level recognized it is not right to take the life of another human being. Amen. But what is unique for us as Christians, for those of you who call yourself a Christian, is that the Bible gives us a fuller insight into why. Why what happened in Parkland, Florida was wrong? Why murder Is wrong. You see, the fundamental biblical reason for why murder is wrong is that the Bible makes plain that humanity is God's ultimate creation, His masterpiece. He created mankind, Genesis 1, in His image. Much like an artist puts his signature on his work, God has put His stamp on each and every one of us, declaring that we are His that each and every one of us is created with immeasurable dignity and majesty. And it's because of that truth that Nicholas Cruz had no right to destroy something so beautiful. 17 of God's masterpieces. And I doubt that anyone in this room would disagree with that. And yet, if what the Bible says is true, that humanity is God's highest and most glorious creation, that all of mankind is immeasurably valuable, then to keep the sixth commandment actually involves more than simply not taking the life of another. And by the end of the day, my hope and prayer is that each and every one of us will see how we also have failed to keep this commandment, thou shalt not murder. I want to begin this morning by looking at the scope of the Sixth Commandment. What is entailed in these four little words, you shall not murder. And first things first, I want to address the elephant in the room by stating what the scope of the Sixth Commandment is not. And I want to do that by looking at the most important word in our text, murder. You see, within the Hebrew language, which the book of Exodus was written in, there are at least eight different words for killing. And knowing that, we have to conclude that Moses was very purposeful in his choosing of this word. And it's important to note when we look at the Hebrew language that this specific Hebrew word, ratzak, is never used in the legal system, it's never used in the military, and it's never used for hunting animals. Unlike in English, in Hebrew, there are different words to use for the execution of a death sentence, for the kind of killing that a soldier does or for the kind of killing that a hunter does. And therefore, what we need to understand right off the bat is that Moses is not making a political statement here in Exodus. He's not making a statement about how governments and legal systems should be run, nor is he making any sort of animal rights statement, but rather... He's speaking specifically to God's people, to the church, and how we should interact with one another. Now, certainly the Bible does have much to say about war and about capital punishment, but not here in Exodus 20. So we won't address that this morning. So to be clear, what this commandment is forbidding is not simply killing, but rather the unlawful killing of a human being. When an individual on his own volition ends the life of another. So now that we have set the parameters there of what is not included in this commandment, I want to turn now to what is included in the scope of this commandment. And We've already stated the obvious that the sixth commandment forbids us from unlawfully taking another human life. And please hear me in saying that this commandment includes no less than that. God is grieved by that. However, the church has long since understood the scope of this commandment to be far greater than simply the committing the physical act of murder. And this morning, I want to highlight two other ways that we can and we do violate the sixth commandment. First, I want to look at what John Calvin called murders of the heart. See, one of the greatest dangers that we have in studying the Ten Commandments is that we can easily fall into the trap of legalism. Legalism being this idea that the law is a list of rules to follow, boxes to check, and that if we follow these rules, if we check these boxes, God will be pleased with us because of our obedience. And the real problem with legalism is that it's all about me, right? It's, it's about me doing what I need to do to get my just reward. And yet so much of the law is about others. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about others. And when we make the law about self, we miss the heart of it entirely, one of the best ways that we can diagnose this problem of legalism in our life is to look at how we are engaging the law. What questions are we asking about the law? I think the Heidelberg Catechism is so helpful here. Question 107 says, Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in in any such way. Can you smell the legalism in that question? Is it enough? You see, the legalist wants to know, what is the bare minimum that I can do in order to get my reward? The legalist has no concern about the world around them, the very reason for which the commandment was written. And Jesus is recognizing how rampant this problem has become, and and he composes the Sermon on the Mount really for the purpose of correcting this wrong thinking. Listen here in Matthew 5 as he addresses the legalism around the sixth commandment, the text that we're looking at today. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, Exodus 20, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In case we missed it, in case we're a little dense the apostle paul drive excuse me the apostle john drives this point even further 1 John 3:15 says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him i recently read about this conversation between a pastor and a jewish rabbi this is not a joke it sounds like the start of a joke but true story, and they were discussing the differences in the two religions. And the rabbi made this deeply insightful point. He says, you know, one of the greatest differences between our two religions is the idea that you, the Christian, have committed a sin just by desiring or thinking it. We, the Jews, believe you have to actually commit the physical act before it's really sin. Otherwise, we'd be sinning all the time which is exactly what Jesus is getting at here in Matthew 5. See, the sixth commandment forbids us not just to commit the act of murder, but also forbids us from committing murder in our hearts. There is a person who upset me a while ago. They're not in this room, I promise. And I haven't yet seen this person since they upset me, And yet I've already concocted a plan for how I'm going to get back at this person the next time I see them. I'm not making this up. Every time I think of this person, I play out my plan in my head. And when I was lying in bed a few nights ago, I thought about this person and the revenge that I was going to seek out. And then I began to think about this text. And the Holy Spirit convicted me with such great intensity. He showed me how according to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, every time that I play out that plan of revenge in my head, even if I never act it out, just by plotting, I'm committing murder in his eyes. As Pastor Daniel mentioned a few weeks ago, the first thing these Ten Commandments should do to us is to cut us, to expose our brokenness. I know that there are very few of us In this room, we've ever taken another man's or woman's life, but I dare say that all of us struggle with murder of the heart. Again, the Heidelberg Catechism says it beautifully. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the roots of murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are murder. Church, in what ways are the roots of murder growing like a weed in your heart? I want want you to right now think about someone who has hurt you badly, someone who wronged you in a profound and ugly way. And I want you to examine your own heart around this person. Is there envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness directed toward this person? But you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that person, they deserve it. If you knew what they did to me, if you knew what he did, if you knew what she did, then you'd know they deserve my hatred, my revenge. And yet Jesus definitively says, thou shalt not murder. And to allow those thoughts, those desires to go unchecked is to commit murder, Not only does the scope of this commandment include the attitudes of our hearts, but the church has long since recognized it also includes our sinful omission as well. What do I mean? Much like the other eight commandments that begin with, you shall not, God intends for us to reject the negative side, but also in turn to embrace the positive, Therefore, to obey the sixth commandment is not simply to avoid taking life, but rather to be a giver of life, or maybe better stated, to be pro-life. So what does it mean to be pro-life? I use that word pro-life intentionally because I would be remiss in a sermon on the sixth commandment if I did not mention the unborn child. Church, I want to be emphatic in saying that the Bible is crystal clear in stating that the life, taking the life of an unborn child is murder. Lest we not forget the words of Psalm 139, the psalmist says, in in reference to God, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. What the psalmist is making plain here is that a child in the womb is a living human being who has an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And when that life is taken, it is most tragic, and it's wrong. Now, I recognize in a room this size that there are no doubt women here who have had an abortion. And I want to say to you that you are no more guilty of this commandment than each and every one of us who has envied, who has hated, who has sought revenge. And you are in no more need of God's grace than I am. We all stand condemned because of our disobedience. And God's grace is enough for you. With that being said, I I want to push a little bit harder here. What does it mean for us to be pro-life? I would argue that the church has for years heralded the pro-life movement on behalf of the unborn child. But in many ways, we have failed miserably to herald the pro-life movement on behalf of the one who has been born. And there's no better example of what this failure looks like than the parable of, Of the Good Samaritan written for good church people like you and me. Do you remember the story? There's a Jewish man walking down the road and he gets jumped, beaten, robbed, and left for dead. And then a priest strolls by, a vocational minister like Daniel and myself, and he happens to be walking on the same road. And instead of stopping to help, he chooses to walk on the other side of the road. Maybe to avoid the stench, maybe so he can get away with not noticing that the man was there. And then a Levite comes by, a Levite being much more like you, a faithful churchman or churchwoman. And he too walks by on the other side of the road. But then along comes a Samaritan a sworn enemy of the injured man, a person that the injured man would have most likely not even spoken to had they crossed paths on that road. And this Samaritan doesn't pass by, but he stops. He bandages the man's wounds, pours on oil and wine, places the man on his donkey, takes him to the inn, pays for his room and board, and cares for him until he is back to full health. What a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be pro-life. What's the point of the story? Once again, Jesus is trying to address the legalism that has so creeped into the church. Surely the priest and the Levite could argue, well, I didn't beat him up. I didn't rob him. I didn't do anything wrong. Some other guy did that. But Jesus is showing us how, in our pursuit of personal piety, getting it right, we wind up missing the point entirely. We miss how the law is not just for us, but it's meant to transform the world we live in. I want to read a lengthy quote from Martin Luther about this commandment. He says, This command is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor. Or though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. If you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you have let him freeze to death. If you see one suffer hunger and you do not feed him, you have let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned to death or in similar peril and you do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. It will do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word or deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of the service by which his life might have been saved. Therefore, God rightly calls all persons murderers who do not offer counsel and aid to men in need and in peril of body and life. He will pass most terrible sentence upon them in the day of judgment as Christ himself declares. And then Luther quotes Matthew 25. I was hungry and thirsty, and you gave me no food or drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Brothers and sisters, the scope of this commandment certainly calls for us to be pro-life by fighting for the life of the unborn child. But that fight for life, for abundant life, must not end when that child is born. You see, we actually violate the sixth commandment when we observe the inequity in our educational system here in Durham, and we just walk right on by. We violate the sixth commandment when we observe the affordable housing crisis in our city, and we just walk right on by. We violate the sixth commandment when we observe the sex trade that is rampant in our state, in our city, that continues to run rampant around the world, and we just walk right on by. We violate the sixth commandment when we see the struggles of the refugee and we just walk on by. We violate the sixth commandment when we ignore ignore the plight of the homeless, of the mentally ill, the disabled, the abused, the widow, the orphan. The list goes on and on. And the reason that we do this, the reason we don't get involved is so often we fail to see and truly believe the very truth that makes murder wrong that we talked about in the first place that all of God's people are his masterpieces that were created in his image with immeasurable dignity therefore their whole life matters their flourishing matters but what what if what if we Christ Central Church began to put on this biblical lens and we began to see our abstinence as murder I wonder how much more of a blessing we might become to our beloved city if we did. And this morning in the early service, I watched somebody get out of their seat and go sit with somebody who was hurting, crying. What a beautiful picture of what it means to be pro-life. How do we do do this? How do we begin to see the dignity of all humanity? How do we curb our angry hearts and embrace this call to pro-life living? Again, like Daniel mentioned a few weeks ago, the first role of the Ten Commandments is to cut us, to expose us as the sinful men and women that we truly are. And there's no question when we understand the full scope of this commandment that it cuts us deep. That the anger in our hearts and the omission of loving our neighbor both definitively prove that we are guilty of murder, all of us, but the law was never intended to leave us there, broken and without hope. But rather, it's supposed to propel us to Christ, causing us to fall down at his feet, begging for his mercy and grace. And when we run to Jesus for mercy and grace, where do we find him but on the cross, being murdered for something that he did not do? And there in the crowd, the very people who demanded this murder, what are they doing? They're mocking him. They're laughing at him. They're spitting on him. And what does Jesus do in return? Does he strike them down for not acknowledging his authority and lordship? Does he banish them to hell for not recognizing and honoring him as the king of kings, lord of lords? No. He cries out to his heavenly father on their behalf. He says, forgive them, father, for they know not what they do. He begs his father for mercy for them and for us so church this morning and always we must take heart in the fact that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ went to the cross to forgive murderers like you and like me and it's when that truth when it lands that it compels us to live differently not so that Christ will love us because he already has and he already does But it's that truth that fuels us and gives us this picture of what it means to be pro-life, even to those that seem to deserve the opposite. And then we begin to see the dignity of all humanity, and we seek to forgive rather than to wrong people and commit murder in our hearts. And we have refused to walk by those who are hurting, those who are suffering, and we begin to stop committing the murder of omission One person at a time. Church, we need to repent. We need to repent of the ways that we have not loved our neighbors well. And then we receive and rest in the forgiveness that God extends even to us murderers. And then we beg, God, God, would you empower us to walk in love and to truly love our neighbor as ourselves? Let's pray. Father, I confess, I repent. There's so much anger and ugliness and root of murder in my heart. And I allow that ugliness to go unchecked with no guilt or remorse. Father, would you convict us this morning of the murder of our hearts? Father, convict us of our sin of omission, how we have failed to be pro-life, how we continue to walk right by those who are struggling, those who are hurting, those who are in need. God, would you compel us as we are moved by this beautiful picture of your son, Jesus, pro-life for us, crucified for us. Would you compel us with his love to live differently, to love our neighbor as ourselves. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.